It's a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning on the 10th anniversary of Holy Trinity Church. If you have an opportunity after the service and you've been here for longer than I have, then please come up to me. And I would love to hear, not everybody has to do it, but I would just love to get to know what God has done over the past 10 years. And so even if you have one or two sentences and you can come up and say, I'm thankful for God doing this while I've been here at Holy Trinity, or I've been blessed in this way by being here at Holy Trinity, or I've been wrestling through this, or just some one line, I would love to hear it. So please feel free to approach me with that as we celebrate together after the service. Three Sundays ago, we encountered Jesus, the host. He was cooking breakfast for his disciples on the beach. Two Sundays ago, we encountered Jesus, the guest, attending a wedding reception. Last Sunday, we encountered Jesus, the teacher, debating in the middle of the night, one of the top theologians of his day. And now, this Sunday, we encounter Jesus, the tired traveler, asking a woman for a drink of water. Now, as Californians, it's not hard for us to imagine the importance of a well in a hot, dry, arid climate. Uh, We wish we had more water here oftentimes. I have a friend who works building wells uh, in Africa in places where people live that have a tough time getting access to, to water. And he was describing one group of people he was trying to design a well for in particular, who every morning, the women of the group in particular would get up, they would carry their big jugs, They would walk two hours (laughs) to get to the nearest river, which was a water source, fill up these massive jugs that weighed about 40 pounds each by the time they were done, put them on their head, and they would walk the two hours back. So every single day, it was four-hour round trip in order to get the water that you needed for the day. And he said, just imagine in that setting what a well would symbolize. (laughs) All of a sudden, you put a well in the middle of their camp. And it's a symbol of blessing, of life, of abundance. It's a symbol of what you need in order to live and thrive and flourish as a human being. Now, in a passage this morning, I'm going to suggest that there's not one well that we're dealing with. There's actually three. There are three wells in this passage. Now, the first of them is the most obvious. It's Jacob's well. You see, Jesus, when he comes to Jacob's well, crosses a whole bunch of cultural boundaries in that time. You see, John gives us lots of detail of Jesus coming to this well because he wants to draw this out for us. He says, first, Jesus crosses the cultural geographical boundary, verses 3 through 5. He leaves Judea, and he goes to Galilee, and on the way, he stops in a town of Samaria called Sychar. Now, if you're reading this with kind of ancient Jewish eyes, you have alarm bells going off and red flags right away. Because you know that Jesus could have taken a different route in order to get to Galilee, but he decides to go straight through Samaria. And Samaria is precisely the place and precisely the people that you would avoid if you were a conservative, pious, Bible-believing Jew of the day. You wouldn't go there. And yet that's precisely where Jesus goes. He crosses the cultural geographical boundary, and it doesn't stop there we then see that Jesus kind of crosses this divine human boundary as well. Because we're told Jesus goes there and he goes to Jacob's well and he's wearied from his journey. Now, Jacob's well is actually still there today. It's one of three wells in in the Middle East that are still active for over about 3,000 years. (laughs) And it still has its original capstone on it. 
The original capstone would have been about five feet wide and 18 to 20 inches deep with a hole in it to lower down a bucket. It's a massive capstone. And what it provided was also a sort of bench for tired travelers to rest on as they were taking a pit stop to get water. And so we see here, that's what Jesus is doing. It says he's sitting beside the well, but actually it could be translated, he's sitting on the well. He's taking a rest. He's tired and weary from his travels. This is interesting to me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with human flesh and bones, feeling tired and weary and weak from his travels. I was just thinking about it this week. It brings new life to when Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He knows what it's like to be there. So he not only crosses the cultural geographical boundary, he crosses the divine and human one, but he goes further. He crosses the gender boundary as well. We see this in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, in the ancient Middle Eastern context, still that way in some places today, if a woman came up to draw water, immediately Jesus, as a Jewish man, should have distanced himself some 20, 30 feet from her. It was important that you not be seen in public alone with any woman who is not your wife. And women came, traditionally came to the well either at dawn or at dusk, not in the middle of the day. And normally women traveled in groups to come to wells and get their water, not alone. So the fact that this woman is coming in the middle of the day and she's coming alone means one of two things. It means either she's a shady figure and she's looking for trouble or she's socially outcast and she's alone and broken. This woman comes to Jesus the well and Jesus does not flinch. He stays put. He wants to be in her presence. You see, Jesus crosses the cultural geographical boundary, the divine human boundary, the gender boundary, and then he breaks the ethnic religious boundary. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Did you notice that? Actually, just pause here for a moment. Jesus didn't say, you're a sinner, let me tell you what you need. (laughs) Jesus begins by saying, I need. Give me a drink. And then the Samaritan woman, utterly shocked, says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what we see Jesus doing in these details that John is pulling out for us is we see Jesus crossing every imaginable boundary in that time, in that culture. And why is Jesus doing it? Because he wants to be with this woman. He has something to give her that is going to totally transform her life. Jesus is determined to give every sort and type of person life, and that's why he stays there. Remember last week, John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, we talked about how he would have been one of the intellectual elites of his day. He would have been a great teacher and professor. He was one of the leaders of Israel. He was the highest of the high. And now in John chapter 4, you get Jesus approaching a woman, a Samaritan woman, in the middle of the day alone, who may have been morally compromised, the lowest of the low in that society. 
And so what we see Jesus doing is he's breaking all sorts of barriers and boundaries because he wants to give the highest of the high, and he wants to give the lowest of the low, and he wants to give everyone in between life, abundant life. It all begins with a needy request at Jacob's well. Give me a drink. And this amazing encounter begins to unfold. But what Jesus does next is he starts to draw this woman's attention away from his request, away from Jacob's well, and he starts to draw her attention to his identity, wanting her to see that he is a far deeper well. Verse 10, Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking, if we knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to us, if our friends and family knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to them, they would have asked, and he would have given them living water. You see, the woman comes to Jacob's well only to discover that Jesus considers him the well that she actually needs. She says, I will give you living water. She's so baffled by this in verses 11 and 12, Jesus has to explain it again in verses 13 and 14. And he says, everyone who drinks this water, Jacob's well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again literally will never thirst into eternity. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Notice what he's doing. Before he ever mentions her brokenness or her sin or her relational issues in this passage, he actually talks about her thirstiness. Sure, he's going to bring up those issues soon. But before he does that, he talks about the deep soul thirst that lies at the depths of her humanity. See, Jesus knows about the deep soul thirst. A couple of years ago, I was getting coffee at a place, and I saw a whole kind of display of new coconut water. Is coconut water still a thing here? Okay, yeah. Maybe it's out of vogue a little bit. It was, you know, five years ago or something. It was called Thirsty Buddha a metallic bottle, really shiny and beautiful, and it had this great tagline. It said, Buddha-licious. <laughs> and below it, it had this wonderful quote. It said, hydrate from within, replenish and quench your thirst naturally. Hydrate from within, replenish and quench your thirst naturally. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes this sort of view of life as living life within the imminent horizon. Living life in the imminent horizon. There's a sense in which we know that we're thirsty creatures. But the way in which we are trying to satisfy those deep longings and desires is totally confused. We're looking at a whole bunch of places to get what we want. But we're at a complete loss as where to find deep and true satisfaction. And he talks about how this can kind of express itself in a whole bunch of different ways. It can express itself in the sense of kind of just general consumerism. We can, we can love clicking the button on Amazon.com, and it gives us just for a moment a flicker of kind of life inside as we get a new book for me 
or for somebody else, a new gadget or gizmo, or uh, you name it, whatever you want. But he's also saying people are starting to become disenchanted with consumerism. That millennials themselves are actually starting to become disenchanted with consumerism because they're realizing that it only goes so deep and it only lasts for so long. And so any of you that do any marketing with millennials know that what you aim for is you aim for the total experience. You don't just aim for the product. So people no longer just want to buy something. They want to have a life-giving experience as they buy something. They want the store to be set up in such a way and the experience of interacting with people and buying something to be something that's life-giving. Jesus is putting his finger on what lies underneath a lot of these cultural dynamics. He's saying there's a deep soul thirst in humanity. And part of our pain as a culture is that we've forgotten that this soul thirst is meant to be for much more than the imminent horizon. It's meant to be for actually God himself. So if any of you have read C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, you probably know this quote really well. C.S. Lewis would say, it seems our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, says C.S. Lewis, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, Jesus doesn't scold the woman for her sin, but he highlights her thirst, her longing for intimacy and belonging and life. And he says, the water that I am offering you can actually satisfy that in such a way that will never run dry. And the question for us is, what is this water that Jesus is offering to her? As you read on in the Gospel of John, and you get to John chapter 7, you see Jesus standing up in the midst of a feast, a great festival, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. So he picks up that thirsting language again. And he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John, in a little side note, says, now he said this about the Holy Spirit, whom he was going to pour out. It's the Holy Spirit. The gift that Jesus wants to give is the greatest gift he can possibly give. It's the Spirit. It's God himself. It's the empowering presence of God. It's the indwelling presence of God. It is the Shekinah glory of God. It is the life-giving Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation. It is the life-giving spirit who inspired the Psalms and the prophets to speak the words of God to the people of God. It is the spirit that came on Jesus at his baptism and sent him into the desert to resist Satan and then to bring the kingdom of God into the world. It is the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus wants to give us living water. He doesn't want to remove the thirst that lies in the depths of our being. He wants to satisfy it. And he wants to do it with the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. See, it's a bit like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls with a paper cup. There's just so much life to be had. 
Jacob's well, Jesus' well. And the third well that we get is actually the Samaritan woman. Jesus says in verse 14, the water that I will give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So did you note the transitions there? The encounter happens at Jacob's well, and then Jesus directs her attention to him as the well. He will give life-giving waters, the Holy Spirit, to her, and then says, you will have this kind of life welling up within you. She becomes a well herself. And this word for welling up, alumai, it's a wonderful New Testament word, only occurs two other times in the New Testament, both in the book of Acts. And in both places, it's where the apostles go and they heal somebody. They're led by the Holy Spirit to lay hands on somebody and heal somebody. And that person who is lame in these instances leaps up and starts walking again for the first time. And that word leaping up is the word alamai. The creative healing power of God causing people to leap up who have never leapt up before. Alamai. Life-giving water will leap up within you when you experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's precisely what Jesus wants to give. I heard a preacher once say, that the church of Jesus Christ will finally have come to understand the fullness of the gospel when Pentecost is as big a celebration as Christmas and Easter. That's worth repeating. The church of Jesus Christ will finally have come to understand the fullness of the gospel when Pentecost is as big a celebration as Christmas and Easter. Think about it for a moment. Jesus wants to give us the Spirit. And he just wants us to receive it. Notice here, there's no commands yet. There's no commands. He's just saying, if you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it is that, that is speaking to you right now, you would just ask, and I would give it to you. Jesus wants to give it. And he wants to give it abundantly to his people. And I find great encouragement in this, because there's many of us in here who no doubt come here today and feeling like we don't have the energy to actually do a whole lot. Maybe it's for a myriad of reasons, whether we're disillusioned by some sort of experience in the past, whether we're feeling broken and weak, or relationships that are fraying and we have, that have tension in our lives, whether it's we feel totally overrun by the amount that it's on our plate, especially with work and with family and with different things, and we feel like we just don't have what it takes. Or maybe some of us come in here feeling like, ah, there's nothing really long, wrong with my life, technically, at the surface, but there's still a deep ache for me, in me, for something more. And what we see here is that Jesus wants to give the Holy Spirit to us. And that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings healing and brings life and brings newness in ways that we could never conjure up ourselves. It's amazing to me that when Jesus was preparing his disciples for death, he said to them, look, trust me, it's actually better for you if I go, because then I will send the Holy Spirit. And it's no surprise that when Jesus is hanging on the cross in the Gospel of John and they pierce his side, what comes out of his side? Blood and water. Water representing the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's no surprise that when Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears to his fearful and dejected and disillusioned disciples, what does he say? He says, peace be with you, and he breathes on them, reflecting Genesis chapter 2, the breath of God upon humanity. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, receive the Holy Spirit today. Let me end with this prayer. It's called Veni Creator Spiritus. It means come, Creator Spirit. Come, Holy Ghost. Our souls inspire. Enlighten with celestial fire. Thou the anointing spirit art, who dost thy sevenfold gifts impart. Thy blessed unction from above is comfort, life, and fire of love. Enable with perpetual light the dullness of our blinded sight. Anoint and cheer our soiled face with the abundance of thy grace. Keep far our foes and give peace at home. Where thou art guide, no ill can come. Teach us to know the Father, Son, and thee of both to be but one, that through the ages all along this may be our endless song. Praise to thy eternal merit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.